0: amazing. There are certain heights that can be accommodated. That was not among them. Um, It's good to see you all. Uh, Welcome again. You've been welcomed many times. You know, you're welcome here. Um, As Krista said, my name is Matt. Um, I want to start with a story. Um, A little bit more than uh, 15 years ago, I was uh, applying to graduate schools, applying to doctoral programs. And, you know, basically, I I had questions about the Bible that um, I wanted to get answered. I didn't want my life of faith to be built on never having asked the question that I couldn't answer, right? Does that make sense? It was like, I don't want to give up on the... I just had questions. I still needed them answered. So I was like, all right, what else do I know how to do? I know how to go to school. I'll go to school. I'll get those Bible answers question, uh, answer, uh, Bible questions answered. And it was a really vulnerable time. So if, you, if you've been through the process of applying to school of various sorts or applying really to anything you know, applying to that job, whatever it is, it can be this really vulnerable time, Right. Um, That process for me raised questions about um, identity and vocation. Uh, You know, who really um, am I? Who was I at the time? Um, I had been educated as an undergraduate um, at a very secular environment at Yale, but I had at the same time also found really vibrant life in a faith community at Yale. Um, But those allegiances sort of seemed to point in different directions and this whole process of applying to programs to study the Bible um, was kind of, kept suggesting one, I need to pick one way or another. Because by one account of things at least, where I went to graduate school would answer all of those questions definitively once and for all. Either I would go to a secular religious studies program or a religious seminary and, and that would be that. And um, with those at the stakes, as the stakes, I, I felt like kind of neither option seemed, seemed right. But uh, those were the options, and what else could I do? It, it, all of this came to a head in a conversation that I had with a faculty member at one of the Christian seminaries that I had applied to. I had been offered a spot in the program, and this faculty member just wanted to, to talk just to make sure that I was coming. And I was grateful, but I was um, also thinking seriously about accepting a spot that I had been offered in Yale's more or less secular religious studies department. And the the religious, like the Christian seminary professor, was aghast. Or them saying to me, like, those are, like, such different programs. (laughs) Like, set aside for a moment how hard it is to believe that you can't decide between the two of them. (laughs) Um, I don't know how you got admitted to both of them. (laughs) Like, right? I don't, and I will never forget, right, this line. Something to the effect of, I don't know who you're deceiving, but you're lying to somebody. And you just need to decide. Okay. All right. All right. You feel it. All right. You feel it, right? Um, that was like 15, 16 years ago. There's been a lot of prayer ministry since then. Um, it was a lot. It was like literally like a suppressed memory. I'm not joking. It was like a suppressed memory at some point. It was like, wait, did that happen? Yes, that happened. Um, checked with some people, right? You know, like, did I ever say? Yes. Yeah, you said that, that was exactly how that went down. questions about identity and belonging are so often tied up together, who we really are, with whom we belong. And the stakes are huge. And so this week, as we continue our series, we'll come back to that story, there's more to tell. Um, but as we continue this, this series on resurrected lives, on what it would mean to live our lives in light of and in uh, that, that lives that participate in the res- resurrection of Jesus, I, I want to take up the questions of identity and belonging that show up in the story of Saul, perhaps better known to, to some as Paul. Um, in the book of Acts, um, the book of the Bible that tells the story of the early church, the, the followers of Jesus, um, their lives after Jesus' resurrection and return to God the Father. And this story of Saul and his, sort of his identity and his sort of search for belonging, I think um, is something that God can use to speak to us powerfully this afternoon. And, and as we do that, I think that we'll find... Um, I'll, I'll I'll just sort of tell you how I think this will go. I think we'll find that resurrected lives are marked in at least three ways. They are, first of all, they are founded in love. They are integrated in a calling, and they are rooted in community. They're founded in love. They're integrated. They're woven together. Whatever disparate pieces or seem to sort of like not fit in the suitcase, those things are woven together in a calling and they're rooted and lived out in a community. But before we get too far, um, let, me, let me pray uh, for God's continued presence with us. Lord, we thank you that you are present with us here in this place. If we are new to experiencing your presence, we especially thank you for that. Um, would you continue to be with us Speak to us, open our eyes and our ears to see and to hear what you have for us this afternoon. Amen. All right, so the the story of Saul's calling really gets going in Acts chapter 9, where we read this. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any who belonged to the way, uh, and maybe the oldest sort of way of talking about um, the Christian community, um, any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, as I said, this story's like getting really getting going here, but obviously, as you can tell, um, this is not the first mention of Saul in Acts. Um, that comes back in Acts chapter 7, where Saul appears for the first time as the one at whose feet people um, who stoned S- uh, S- Stephen, a young follower of Jesus, murdered for his faith. He's the one at whose feet Saul, they, they like leave their cloaks in front of Saul. You know, got to take off your jacket to get engaged in the stoning. Um, and, And Saul, we're told, is the one who approved of the killing. And this first murder launched a broader persecution against the followers of Jesus, particularly in Jerusalem, where Saul had the support of the powers that be. And so in uh, chapter 9, Saul is looking to broaden this persecution geographically northwards towards uh, Damascus. And he um, persuades the necessary folks and is on his way to Damascus, letters in hand that give him the power to jail followers of Jesus for their faith. Acts continues. Now, as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, right? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. We have to imagine that this was an alarming revelation for Saul. The guy whose followers you have been killing, the guy you thought was dead, whose resurrection his followers were teaching, that guy shows up in a blinding light as you are on the way to imprison, if not kill, more of his followers. Saul has to assume this is bad news, right? Surely the next line is like, "I smite thee," right, <laughs> um, or some such thing, right? Like you were wrong, sucker. Now here is yours, right? We should imagine Saul bracing himself, right? But um, text goes on and says, "But, aha, there's a but." Jesus goes on, get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. That city you're going to, to like kill Christians, go there, but you're going to get different instructions. No smiting. There's a blinding, but it's just a bright light. Um, We'll get into that. But um, instead, as we see, Jesus has plans for Saul's life. The resurrected Jesus is pursuing Saul in love. This is huge. It's huge. You see, when Acts was written, the idea that one who died might return from the dead was not unknown in the ancient world. That that wasn't the surprising part to them. Um, many at that time expected that any day now, the emperor Nero, um, who had died in 68, we're well, talking about in the, the, the people who are hearing Luke's, Luke's story, but this isn't the only story like this. Um, obviously, different things would have been in the mind of Saul. All right, but just go with me. Um, Nero um, would return, was the idea. And many of the, many folks actually believe that he was already uh, resurrected, re de vivus, um, and... Uh, the thought was that his resurrection would become obvious enough when Nero inevitably took vengeance against his enemies in the Roman Senate who had declared him a public enemy. That is, the expectation was that Nero, resurrected, would return to destroy Rome. Are you getting it? Are you getting what was so impactful about Jesus' resurrection in the ancient world? I mean, for us moderns, we get hung up on the idea of resurrection itself, right? We're sort of like, well, that's crazy. Like, you die, and then that's, that's it, right? But for, for most of the folks who are reading Acts, um, actually, for many of those folks, oh, the idea that someone would come back from the dead? Sure, fair enough. It's going to happen, right? Uh, in their imaginations. What was unbelievable for them was that someone would be raised from the dead and not seek vengeance on their enemies, That someone would be raised from the dead and seek to rescue and reconcile with those who had killed them. That's the gospel for Jesus' first followers. Not just that Jesus is alive, but that he has returned to pursue us in love, even those of us who had made ourselves his enemies. This is what Saul experiences on the road to Damascus, and he will retell this story two more times in in, in Acts because this is the founding experience for him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. Not I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, now I will have my vengeance on you. But I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, now get up, you are an instrument, we will find out in a moment, whom I have chosen. I have not condemned you, I have chosen So many of us live in fear of rejection or condemnation. We don't, maybe we don't even feel, I don't know about you, but I don't even necessarily feel like I would have to make myself someone's enemy in order to like get the blowback, right? Just falling short of expectations, being, I'm a perfectionist, so I mean, just like being like less than perfect (laughs) um, at our jobs, uh, maybe in class, in our I think especially in our performance of virtue, whatever that means, in whichever community we're hoping not to be rejected by, we live in fear that the smallest misstep could result in our rejection and condemnation. And often it's those um, closest to us or, well, maybe in that medium distance to us, the one whose favor we really, really want, whose approval we really, really want, it's those folks who seem at the greatest risk of shutting us down whether on social media or in real life, there are orthodoxies, liberal, conservative, religious, secular, what have you, there are orthodoxies that we dare not cross lest we find ourselves as outcasts. And as a result, our senses of identity and belonging are incredibly tenuous resurrected lives, I take it, are different because they are founded in love. And not just any love, but the love of one who pursues us in love, even in the face of our enmity. Even when we make ourselves his enemies, Jesus will not give up on us. And far from having to perform to earn his love, Jesus extends it freely, lavishly, prodigally, wildly, we might say. And rather than the anxious lives we live desperately trying to keep hold of our tenuous acceptance among communities that sometimes seem to be looking for reasons to cut us loose, there's this whole new sort of life available to us that's founded in this unconditional love of the resurrected one who returns from the dead to reconcile with those who put him to death. Like the love of a parent or the love of family more broadly or just the, just the faithfulness of, of a good friend maybe could give us a little bit of a picture of what we're talking about here. A love that's sort of constitutive of who we are rather than a response to what we're able to do. But but I will tell you, man, like, I mean, we, we could back up a second, right? Like, I mean, the love of, like, this institution outside these doors, anybody has a connection to Yale, like, I I don't know, I I every once in a while I feel like I have to tell you all like Yale doesn't love you. Seriously. No, I'm just I've been I've been like cast out into the darkness by Mother Yale. Like 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 Yale doesn't love you. I don't think your political party loves you. I don't think all your friends that you connect with and sort of like throw shade on like the people who all think the wrong thing. I don't I don't think at least like in that mode, I don't think that loves you. If you take the wrong step, you're out. I think, I think, I think, I think the people who cared for you when you were really young. I think those people love you. I think you. I think you probably have siblings who who love for you and care for you. Close friends who love for you, love you and care for you. But if you go through that list, you probably also realize like. Sometimes that's that's, even that's going to run short. And those people are going to fail you too. You know that. We know that because we know we've failed some of those people, right, when we're in those relationships. There's only one who's not going to fail us. And that's our God. And that's why we've been singing about the love of God already this afternoon. Only the love of God can provide the sort of firm foundation that we need. Only the love of the resurrected one who returns from the dead to reconcile with those who put him to death can lay the sort of foundation that we actually need for our identity and sense of belonging to live the sort of lives that, we, that we're called to live. To live the sort of lives I think actually like in our deepest selves the kinds of lives we actually want to live. So resurrected lives. Resurrected lives are founded in and by this radical love. And it's that foundation that changes everything that comes, that comes next. But we can continue on in the story. And both of our, our, two, our last two aspects of resurrected lives are, are found here in this same sort of part of the story. Paul, who's blinded by the light he saw on the road, is led by his travel companions to Damascus. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, get up, And go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind, to imprison all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. All right, there's a lot there, and not all of it will actually be able to talk, talk through. For now, at least, I just want to focus on on what's going on in the substance of Saul's calling. He is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I think to understand the significance of this calling, we need to take a step back and consider the life of Saul to this point. Saul, um, as we hear in this passage, was born in a city called Tarsus on the southern coast of what we now call Turkey. It was the very center of Hellenistic, late uh, Greek philosophy, especially Stoicism, which is sort of like, it's like what the smart people thought back in the first century. Um, but he grew up in that town. Um, he grew up as a diaspora Jew. So that's yeah, a particular sort of childhood, right? Growing up at the heart of Greek philosophy, um, Saul was not really Greek. I mean, he spoke Greek. We have, we have his, his Greek. He wrote, he wrote, pretty, he wrote he didn't write great Greek. He wrote pretty good Greek right? Um, he received, we can tell from the way that he wrote, a Greek r- rhetorical education. I think we can tell from some of the, some of the things that he wrote, he probably, um, he at least had heard a good bit of Greek philosophy, Stoic philosophy in particular. I don't know if he really had a ph- philosophical education. He might have sort of had his nose pressed up against the glass, as it were. But he... He wasn't, he wasn't Greek. For all of that, he still, he wasn't Greek, not really, because ethnically and religiously, uh, and those usually ran together for most people in the ancient world, um, Saul was Jewish. He was, his heritage went back to Judea. And so he went. He went at some point in his life, early-ish, I don't, I don't know. I, I always guess somewhere, maybe around the time you might send, uh, maybe around high school, I would think, we didn't have, they didn't have high school. He had done his education by then. He goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Judea, right? And he's trying, he, he worked hard to, pr- to prove there that he belonged. He didn't just visit the homeland. He cast his lot with the Pharisees such that he could claim, as Acts later has him claim, that he was, quote, brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, um, educated strictly according to uh, Jewish ancestral law, being zealous for God, he says. But I think we have to imagine uh, he probably didn't fit in all that well in Jerusalem either. He was too Greek for the purists in Jerusalem, Um, If he had grown up speaking Aramaic at all, maybe he spoke it at home. He probably spoke it with an accent, at least when he arrived in Jerusalem. And whatever Hebrew he knew, he had to work really hard for. I I can relate. Um, He didn't didn't grow up. um, He didn't have the leg up of having grown up speaking a Semitic language. Like other folks in Judea would have. And his observance of Jewish law, of Judean customs, well, I mean, he hadn't grown up in the shadow of the temple. He had never lived in a whole public society oriented around Judaism. He probably stuck out at least as much in Jerusalem as he had in Tarsus. In short, Saul was a third culture kid. And his story is in part a search For identity and belonging, both in a high society academic world that thought he didn't belong ethnically or religiously, on the one hand, and in a religious world in which he didn't belong as someone too entangled in secular Greek society. Saul's fractured identity is integrated here. Look at what it says, right? It's integrated here in a calling from the resurrected one. Who is Saul? He is an instrument of who has been chosen by Jesus to bring Jesus' name before Gentiles and kings on the one hand and before the people of Israel, right? It's both the calling to Gentiles and kings and to the people of Israel. It's both. Everything that had been a liability in his life at this point is suddenly an asset, right? Greek or Hebrew, it's both. But not in that sort of tenuous fence-sitting, trying not to get caught as not really belonging sort of way, right? No, it's a different thing because now it's, fo- it's founded in the unconditional love of the resurrected one who returned from the dead to seek and save and reconcile with those who wanted him dead. Because it's founded there, Saul's identity is secure in the unconditional love of the one who calls him. After that really difficult phone call with that seminary seminary professor years ago, I found myself racked with uncertainty and feelings of duplicity for like years People continued to try to figure out sort of like whose side I was on. Um, Folks in my department at Yale figured maybe I was like their secret agent. I was invested in the life of the church in order to like take down evangelicalism from the inside, right? (laughs) And folks in the church, not necessarily here at ECV, but like in like the broader church, figured maybe I was a secret agent for them invested in the academy in order to like take down secular liberalism from the inside right Mm. (laughs) I I felt like without intending to I had somehow become like a double agent right when there's two different people who think they're secretly work that you're secretly working for them right like that mm -hmm, okay but I didn't want to do this like this wasn't my goal like I don't think so Uh, yeah okay and so eventually I had, I had to get it sorted out, at least for myself, and I wrote a short journal entry that became a point of orientation for me. I, I, wrote it, I just, I just like looked it up in my like digital journal uh, today, uh, and it's still there under its, under its title, from the fall of 2008, A Promise to Disappoint, I called it. A Promise to Disappoint Both Camps in Pursuit of the One Who Had Called Me. I wrote, I feel like I'm standing on a board bridging two trains hurtling down two parallel tracks. That's precarious enough, but matters are made worse by my task. Both cars that I have access to are carrying gold and my job is to rob one train and enrich the other. Which way the gold is to flow is the issue at hand. But maybe it's of no matter. The noise of the whistling wind and the constant struggle simply to stay on my feet, the suspended board bouncing and slipping as the train ties go careening by, makes it seem unlikely that either job could be carried out with any great amount of success anyway. So, addressing my department and something like the church, I said I must therefore bid farewell to you both. The doubly double-minded must now proclaim his allegiance to only to the one, rather than to the Church of the Academy, to the one instead of the two. And that means I'll have to disappoint. In fact, I have to make a commitment now before the one, a promise to disappoint you both. Of course, I will also fail the one. I will fail to disappoint. This fact does not release me from taking up this, this as my standard. In fact, I'm not taking it up. I'm living into what the one has called me to be. His grace abounds. His love endures. My relationship with him begins with a different assumption than my relationship with you. An assumption not of allegiance but of failure to be faithful on my part and an impossibility of infidelity on his. So church, I will have to speak of ever-increasing questions rather than answers. And academy, I will have to speak of ever-increasing assurance rather than doubt. More questions, more assurance will be my motto, my mantra. That for me is what it's looked like to try to Lean into a calling, not a job or a career, probably not unrelated to those things, but I think when, 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 we, when we're able to hear God's call to us, I think it's something that's profound, like a profoundly grounding sense of the particularity of our identity and our purposes. I think that's what Paul finds in this moment with Jesus on the road to Damascus. But of course, in this same passage, we see the third aspect of resurrected life. Resurrected lives are rooted in community. The fact is, Jesus doesn't call Saul like on the road to Damascus. Do you catch that? Like there's no, there's no point at which Jesus says like, I have, ca- I have chosen you. He doesn't say that. All those words are spoken to Ananias. Saul is sent to those whom he had persecuted, the members of the body of Christ that he is persecuting. I mean, just a quick aside here, in case we didn't catch this language, right? And I think you can see um, some resonance with some things that we find in Paul's letters, right? Um, Paul is persecuting Christians, but the voice on the road, Jesus says, you're persecuting me. This is, this is taught from Christ, I take it. It's not just Paul's good idea that maybe the community is the body of Christ. Jesus is identifying with this community that's living resurrected lives, this community participating in Christ's resurrection. But we never get that moment. We don't have that like intimate moment of Jesus calling Saul for giving him, renaming him Paul or something like that. Um, I don't actually think the switch from Saul to Paul for what it's worth, I don't think that is kind of like a renaming like Abram to Abraham. He's probably known as Paul growing up and like among Greek speakers. And he was known as Saul when he was in like Aramaic speaking world. And his, Paul's, Saul's Paul's calling comes through a community. A community that's participating in Christ's resurrection, which points to the second sort of crucial aspect of this rootedness in community. Because we're called not just to receive Jesus' unexpected, unreasonable, and wild, unconditional love, but also to imitate it ourselves. To share it with others, to dare to embrace even those who have made us their enemies. Not because the harm that they may have caused is no big deal. That's not what reconciliation looks like um, among followers of Jesus. But rather because God, despite the harm that's caused, and the real issue that that really is, and the truth needs to be spoken about that, but because nevertheless, God may well be at work, and and when God is at work, transforming them from the inside out. That's, um, That's what God is up to in the world. And we can dare to embrace those who have made us, made us their enemies if, as and when God is doing the work, transforming them from the inside out. And choosing to imitate Jesus, we too, living resurrected lives, can use our second chances to pursue reconciliation rather than retribution. Retribution. As we saw before, these three aspects, I take it, build on one another, right? Communities of those living resurrected lives are founded in God's love. They mediate our callings and we belong to one another in ways that make no sense apart from the resurrection life in which we share. That is true, friends, in this very room and it has been tested and it is being tested and it will be tested again is this community founded on the unconditional love of god is it uh, oriented around god's work in in, in calling us in ways that integrate the various parts of who we are and indeed the various people that we are in this community. We are so inclined in our, um, in our modern world to think about identity and calling as deeply, or yeah, deeply sort of personal things. Like you go work that out, Like you like get out your journal. I'm not against journaling, I'm a journaler. But there's something communal here. I think it's so powerful, right? Saul's call comes through a man who days earlier had been his enemy. But Jesus is at work reconciling them to one another so that only with one another do they become the people that Jesus has called them to be. I mean, in the end, that decision for me about which doctoral program to attend, I probably could have saved myself a lot of headache from the beginning, just to be more honest about this. It wasn't about choosing an identity or even about belonging to one institution or the other. In the end, the actual practical choice was, was, was made for me. Why? Because God was planting a church here at the Elm City Vineyard, here in New Haven, I remember, like submitting my little form, right? To say, like, why did you choose to, like, you know, go to the program you went to? I checked the box for geographical location, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, it's cause, I mean, like anyone does. I chose Yale because it's in New Haven because New Haven is like worth choosing it's because of what. <laughs> that should be, but um, I love New Haven. Um, but it's because of what God was doing, right? Like here in this community. And all, and in certain ways, right? Like that communal context. It was important that that sort of communal answer sort of answered for me the context in which I would discover my identity and my calling, a calling that would weave together various pieces of my identity that had threatened to tear me apart. And I take it whatever good God has brought out of my. I I don't think this is going too far. I think whatever good God has brought out of my life since has been in the context of, and more often than not, because of God's work in and through this community. Knowing in this community that God's love means that I will always and forever belong with and in God and in the body of Christ assembled knowing that my identity is woven together as an integrated whole by God's calling and not by anyone's, sorry, but not by anyone's sort of recognition. Each spring, I have the privilege of helping um, uh, college students explore what makes life most worth living. And we read a bunch of, uh, religious texts and philosophical and cultural texts, and at the end of the semester, right about now, actually, um, it's their turn. Uh, they have to write down their own account of what it would mean to live a life worthy of our shared humanity. And several years back, a student reached out to me um, uh, late. It was like late the night before drafts of final papers were due. Honestly, I don't think I would have had that, like, I don't think I had that in me when I was a student. Like, by that point, I would have been, like, embarrassed to admit that, like, anyway, I was, of course, still writing the paper at that time, um, but I would have been embarrassed to admit it. Anyway, um, he had the boldness, he reached out. And he said he had come to an intellectual dead end, and he didn't know what to do. He had, in writing this paper, he had tried to, like, take a real honest look at the anxiety and the worry of his life. All that striving for acceptance and belonging that we've been talking about. And he, and he thought, like, that can't be it. Like, that's not a good life. That's not a flourishing life. I can't write a paper that suggests that, that's, that's what we're all living for. The only way to live the kind of courageous life he actually wanted to live was to have his sense of self and self-worth rooted in something unshakable. This much he had reasoned his way to. And then sort of reaching back to a religious upbringing that he no longer identified with, he thought, what I need is the unconditional love of God. I kid, I kid you not, right? Like I walk in, there's like a study room and Bass Library in the basement, if you can imagine. problem like all of that he had sort of worked out the problem was he didn't believe in god and he couldn't make himself believe in god the crisis was that even if he couldn't make himself believe that that god of unconditional love existed he was convinced that that love was what he needed we sat there together in the basement of that library and we talked it through and I wish I could say like it sort of all worked out. It wasn't that simple. Um, That paper ended up being a sort of tragic ode to a divine love that he had never experienced but knew would make all the difference in his life were it real. But friends, this afternoon I, I want to tell you I I think that, the, that experience of, the experience of that love is possible here and now. I actually think we were like in the midst of it like 40 minutes ago before I started talking at you. Um, that's just true. So we should, we should have the worship team come up. I mean, seriously, like, I know that's, Everyone's laughing at me. Um, you're laughing with me. All right. Um, worship team should come up. Um, and if, if you would, if you'd stand. I, I just, I was so encouraged as we were worshiping together. I was like, oh my goodness, maybe the Lord is doing the thing that I was hoping the Lord would be doing today. Because I, I felt the love of God in this really, really powerful way before when we were worshiping. And all I had in my notes for at the end of the talk was pray for folks to experience the love of God. That's what it says in bold <laughs> at the bottom. Because I, I think ultimately, I think that's just what we need. And so many of us, we've tried to build our lives on some, some other foundation. And some of you are pretty skilled, actually, right? At like getting people to like affirm and sort and, um, of commend you, Right? to recognize you, which is dangerous because it means you can start building your life on something else and it works way too long. Right? If, we were, if you were worse at like convincing people to like you, you might be in a better place. <laughs> because we would more quickly, we would sort of like, our, we would like run aground on all these things that are just never going to substitute for the love of God. And so, whatever that is, I, I, I just, whatever love you have been trying to like build your life on, I want you to imagine it. Like, open a hand in front of you, or both hands. I can't because I have this microphone, but you could open your hands in front of you. Imagine those things in your hand, and just release them to God. To say, "I this is because I'll tell you, whatever is in your hand that is not God does not love you the way that God loves you." does not love you the way that God loves you. Not as steadfastly, not as passionately, not as relentlessly or recklessly. So Holy Spirit, would you come and whatever we're releasing to you, we just, we just give it up in the name of Jesus and in exchange for the love that Jesus has shown. Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living Christ, would you just rain your love down on this place? In those deep places of brokenness, those deep places, even of confidence, especially those places of, of, of misplaced confidence, whether we've realized that it's misplaced or whether we're still sort of in that place trying to pretend it's all going to keep working. Would you pour out your love so that we could be grounded? We could be grounded in you and that firm foundation.